0: Christ in the Old Testament. Christ in the Old Testament. Before we go much further, though, I want to make a um, comment on something I said last week, and we need to just include this in the sermon recording for the sake of um, continuity from what was said last week. I I told a story in last week's message about an exchange I had a couple years ago with a former friend of mine who uh, made some comments about the church split we went through three years ago, and then after that came over and knocked on the door of this church building and said, "Hey, you should let me rent to you." So this um, individual sent me an email on Monday and said, "Hey," the gist of it was. Um, that's not quite what happened. And, um, I was careful to tell Rock Church not to disrupt your schedule. We wanted to meet, uh, Sunday night or Saturday or some other time. And so the intention was not to get rid of PBC, get rid of Andy, go with us instead. It was, no, we'll just be like two ships passing in the night. And I said, oh, well, thank you for that clarification. Um, I, I apologize for my, um, Misunderstanding and secondly, my misrepresentation of it. And um, so we cleared that up between ourselves. And I told him I would think about um, possibly retracting it just to clear things up, even though I didn't say his name. And most of you don't even know who this is. But I thought it would be appropriate to address that and just say that um, we've cleared that up and that he apologized for even the, that decision to do that in the first place because it wasn't a smart move. Um, and then he contacted me three years later or something like that to clear things up. So um, that's all I have to say related to that point. Now, today in this sermon, we are in verse, uh, point number one, verses one through 13, Christ in the Old Testament. I titled the message Christ in the Old Testament, even though Christ in the Old Testament is really more of point one. Uh, The rest of it is not so much tied to that theme, but... Uh, it's, it's kind of difficult to have one title or one theme when there are seemingly different topics or different things being addressed. Nevertheless, let's consider Christ in the Old Testament here in verses 1 through 13. Moreover, brethren, I did not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So, what we have going on first here in verses one through five is this Old Testament illustration, an Old Testament illustration. This is the Exodus and wilderness wandering, um, kicking us off here in the beginning of this chapter. So, Paul considers the Corinthian Christians to be in the same line as the Old Testament saints, and I find that interesting. I find that an interesting theological point, an interesting hermeneutical point, an interesting point of interpretation and biblical theology to connect from the Old Testament into the New Testament, that he speaks to a Gentile audience in Corinth and says, All of our fathers were under the cloud. These people are not Jewish. They're Corinthians. Yet he says, these are our fathers. Paul considers the Corinthian Christians to be in the same line as Old Testament saints. Even though there is an ethnic distinction, Jew versus Gentile. There's also a time distinction, some 1,500 years separating them. There's also a significant location change. Where did that take place? Where did the story take place that he's referencing? Moses leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, through the desert. Well, that's in Egypt. Leading them out of Egypt into the wilderness, And right now, he is writing to the Corinthians, which is a Grecian city. So the location is different between an Egyptian desert and an urban city in Greece. There's also a covenantal difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. So there are these distinctions. There are these points of... Uh, difference, or what someone called discontinuity, but that discontinuity he smooths out by saying, "The fact that they were Jews and you're Gentiles makes no difference. They are our fathers, and the time difference—fifteen hundred years—the location, and even the covenantal difference—in spite of these differences." There is great continuity. And that continuity is that Christ is present in the Old Testament. That's what bridges the gap. That's what creates the continuity. That's what, that's what creates this whole situation. Because if not for Christ, the fact that there are there were Jews being led out of Egypt and there are Gentiles in Corinth, there would be no connection between them. These are like the jumper cables that connect one car to another car. They're not connected otherwise. But because of this thing or person, namely Christ, there is a connection between the Jewish people wandering in an Egyptian desert and a bunch of Corinthians living in a city in southern Greece. There is great continuity and that great continuity is created by Christ himself Christ is present in the Old Testament. We see this pointed to explicitly in verse 4. They drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. Do you remember this story? Do you remember when Moses struck the rock, and out of that rock flowed water? And that water provided water for the children of Israel to drink. How important this water is in the desert when there are not um, pools and, and um, springs of fresh water at every turn, but rather um, water is very hard to come by, and the, the nation of Israel is very large, and so they desperately need water. They will die without water. And so Christ is that rock that Moses struck that, that out of which flows this water to provide for Israel. What this is, is in fact a type, types and shadows. This is more than a shadow, though. This is this is a type, typology. So I wanted to speak for a few moments about some t- types, types of Christ, where we see Christ in the Old Testament. This is by no means exhaustive. There are plenty more, especially the more into this shadow area you get. But so the first one is Adam. You start at the beginning. You see Adam as a type of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.45 makes it clear. I don't know if that's 1 Corinthians or if it should be Romans 15. I thought I was utterly losing my mind on Wednesday night with one of my references, which the reference was actually the right reference, but I turned to it in my print Bible and I swear on my life, the words were not there. I turned back and forth to First and Second Kings. It was not there. I looked at it the next day, and it was there, and I have no idea what happened. But nevertheless, Adam is a prefiguration of Christ. The first Adam sinned in the place of his people, and the last Adam, Jesus, earned righteousness on behalf of his people. So this is the first one. And this would be one of the great meta-narratives of the entirety of Scripture, which is this substitution, this federal headship, this representation, where Adam stands in the place of his people, but he sinned, and so all of humanity sinned, and the curse of God fell upon not only Adam and his posterity, but all of human or all of creation. The whole universe was plunged into sin. And then the last Adam would come on the scene and he would earn righteousness in the place of his people. He's not just the second Adam. He's the last Adam. There's not a third one coming to mess it all up again. Types and shadows. Number one, Adam. Number two, Abel. Abel. Who was Abel? Abel was one of the sons of Adam and Eve. Hebrews 12, 24 points to him what you see in Abel is that there is a righteous son. A righteous son giving an acceptable sacrifice and then being killed by his brother. And in that same way, we, the evil brothers of Jesus, kill him and he offers this acceptable sacrifice. The third type to mention right now is the ark. Noah and the Ark. 1 Peter 3, 20-21 makes this connection for us, speaking of the Ark as a type of Christ. So in the Ark, what happens? Well, Noah and his family go and they escape the flood. They escape the wrath of God. They escape the judgment that would fall upon the entire world. And so to Christ is the this ark so that all who are in him are saved from the judgment and wrath of God. If you're not on the ark, you're not going to make it. If you're not in Christ, you're not going to make it. The fourth type to discuss is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb in the Old Testament, children of Israel are Awaiting their exodus. And as they are waiting to flee. They are told to kill a lamb. A spotless firstborn lamb. And put his blood over the doorposts of their home. And if they do that they will be spared. And if they don't. The firstborn son in their home would be killed. And the Israelites do this, they put the blood over the doorposts and they are spared, and the Egyptians do not, and they are not spared. And so this blood sacrifice demonstrates that when those who are under the blood, when the Lord sees this, he will pass over them and they will be spared. And all who are not under the blood, they will perish. In the book of John, chapter 1, John the Baptist is doing his ministry and Jesus approaches him and he looks, John looks at Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. So John is reaching back into the Old Testament and pulling forward this image of the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb, and saying, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God, and he will take away the sins of the world. What that means is you're not going to have to continue sacrificing. This will be the the, the once and for all, the final sacrifice, so that you will not have to continuously, repeatedly, offer up these spotless lambs. The next point is that Jesus is the firstborn offered to God. You can tie this either to the Passover lamb or just taking a step back in a more general sense, the firstborn. Colossians 1.15 makes it clear that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. That language of the firstborn is a common word, a common expression in the New Testament. What we see from that is this firstborn doesn't mean the first creation. Jesus was not created. He is eternal. He is without beginning or end. But he is the preeminent one. He is the most important one. And in ancient times, and it's still today in some cultures, the firstborn or the firstborn son has a special place of status that the others don't have. And so that's what's being alluded to. That Jesus is the number one out of all that exists. He is the preeminent being of all. And he was offered to God. The greatest possible sacrifice was made, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. The most preeminent one, the firstborn in all or over all creation. The next type of Christ to discuss is this burning bush. Burning bush, which is described in Exodus chapter 3. What is the burning bush? Well, it is a bush, and Moses walks up to it, and he sees it on fire, and it's burning, but it's not being burned up. And a voice comes out of that bush. That voice is identified as the angel of the Lord. So there's two points here that you could argue from for this type. Number one being the voice, because Jesus, the word of God, The logos, the word of God, that that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God said, let us make a man in our image. Who is it that's speaking? Well, it's the word of God that's speaking, which is Jesus. And then secondly, this concept of the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is a particular term, a specific expression used repeatedly in the Old Testament of a unique figure that is different from regular angels. The angel of the Lord does things that a mere angel cannot do and the angel of the Lord receives worship in ways that no angel would dare receive. And so this voice comes out of the burning bush being identified with the angel of the Lord, and so I believe that the burning bush is a type of Christ, and it is also a type of Christ because this bush is burned by fire but not consumed. Jesus is actually the one who would consume the fire. The fire of God would fall upon him, and he would take it for his people. And so that all who are in him, all who are hiding behind him, do not feel the effects of his wrath. They're not touched by that blast. A burning bush. Next, the rock. Our text says it. The rock was Christ. Why did I wait till this point to get to the rock instead of starting with the rock? I don't remember. I wrote this over a retreat ago, um, before the retreat. So I think that I probably put the rock, even though it's in our text, as point G, which is what, our eighth point or something? Um, I put that here because I think that chronologically that's where it fits. If we're starting with Adam and then going to Abel, and then we have an ark, and then a Passover lamb, and firstborn, burning bush, the rock, The rock was struck. Moses struck the rock. Jesus was stricken and afflicted. And out of Jesus flows blood and water. Jesus is the one who out of him flows water and then that water comes to us and it saves us, it quenches us, it satisfies us and then as a result out of us, we who are Christians, this same water flows to others. Which by the way, I would give you an uh, an encouragement or a warning that if out of you doesn't flow this water, this would be a good time to check yourself as they say. Because the Spirit of God, who is in his people, dwells within them and flows out of them. So this rock was Christ. Next, the tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt among us is the word tabernacled among us. What do we see in the tabernacle? we see that God is among his people. In this wilderness wandering, there's a cloud going before them by day and a fire going before them by night, and they're carrying this giant tent, a tent that's roughly the size of this middle section of seats here, and they would set it up and tear it down and set it up and tear it down in order to do these practices, these rituals that God had given to them to demonstrate the presence of God, the abiding presence of God, which was with them. That tabernacle system came to a close. Jesus comes on the scene. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is also why he is called Emmanuel, God with us. The next point to mention is Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. Hebrews 4.14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed into heaven, who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we professed. That entire Old Testament sacrificial system we see clearly taught for us in the book of Hebrews that that was about Jesus. The lamb was about Jesus. The tabernacle is about Jesus. The priest, that's about Jesus. This whole system was about Jesus. Even Moses was about Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest. He is the final high priest. I am not a priest. So this is why protestants do not call their pastor a priest and i would urge you that if you're around anglicans and they call themselves protestant but they call their pastor priest you should tell them it's not very protestant of you you should stop calling your pastor priest or father but instead just call him a pastor There are no more priests that God has given after Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest, the final high priest. And next and last, as far as the points I'm going to discuss here, the types of Christ, Jesus is this prophet like Moses. Hebrews 3 addresses this. Moses was faithful in all of God's house, but Jesus has been found greater, found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Moses was a hero of Old Testament Israel. We don't get that. That that, that doesn't make sense to us. We don't think in those kinds of terms. But for them, Moses was a huge deal. He was their guy. Do you know anyone who has a historical figure that they're just obsessed with? Perhaps it's in sports or entertainment. Maybe it's... Taylor Swift, maybe it's a, an athlete. My grandfather, my, so my, I've been asked multiple times over the last like, two days, hey, have you seen this movie or that movie? I'm like, no, I didn't grow up with a TV, so I don't know. And then I got a TV, and it didn't have channels. And then I went to college, and we didn't have TV there. Then I moved to New York and worked in a food pantry, and we didn't have TV there. So then I watched my first movie at age 24 in a movie theater, so I'm kind of out of touch. My family's kind of out of touch. My grandfather, though, he had a hero. My grandfather Woodard. And his hero was Abraham Lincoln. And when I say a hero, I mean in his three-bedroom, two-bath house that he and my grandmother moved into across the street from us when they re- he retired from working in the steel mill in Pennsylvania, he moved to Florida to be across the street from his grandkids, They bought the house literally right across from us, and um, they made one of the bedrooms a memorial to Abraham Lincoln, literally. It was called called the Lincoln Room. I'm dead serious. So some of the artifacts that he had, he had a, a real Civil War musket, like a rifle from the Civil War. He had another Civil War era musket that wasn't actually a military rifle, but just a regular, like, farmer's rifle. He had a Civil War era cannonball sitting on a shelf there. Um, he had an old picture of Abe Lincoln. He had all these books of Civil War history. Um, that one room had a wood floor. The rest of the house had carpet. So you walk in and you're stepping back in time. The bed was a rope bed, if you know what that is. So you got a wooden frame, you got these wooden beams, and then instead of having like a box spring or a spring thing under it, instead it's ropes that are woven together like a um, something that's woven, and. the the ropes would get loose, so you have to tighten them, which is where the expression good night, sleep tight comes from. You tighten up the ropes on your bed so it doesn't sag as much in the middle. It's an antique Civil War era bed. It's an odd size too. It's not any normal size. You have to get the sheets custom made. So anyway, for my grandfather, Abraham Lincoln was a big deal. He was his hero. Old Testament Israel... Moses was a huge deal. He was their guy. Everything was about Moses. You couldn't be around them without hearing, "Well, Moses says this and Moses says that." And the, the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is better than Moses. He is greater than Moses. He is like Moses, but better. Now, these are, I think, uh, ten. I haven't counted them recently. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, ten. Ten types. There are plenty more. But we see Jesus in the Old Testament. We see, in spite of the differences between New Testament Gentile Christians and Old Testament Jewish Israelites wandering in a wilderness 1500 years prior, we see a great deal of continuity. So we have an Old Testament illustration, this Exodus or wilderness wandering. The rock was Christ, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This brings us to our second subpoint, verses 6 through 11. An ancient warning applied today. An ancient warning applied today. Now, these things became our example. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all of these things happen to them as examples that they, and they were written for our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So what we see is this: this is an ancient warning applied today. There are three particular points that he makes; three points of warning that are examples for us as New Testament Christians now living 2,000 years yet further ahead. But these are very relevant for us today. The first is idol worship. Do not participate in or practice idol worship. In this book of 1 Corinthians, there is this great theme This great problem that Paul is addressing of idolatry and idol worship, because there in Corinth there were these massive pagan temples where they're offering incense, they're burning sacrifices to false gods, literal statues that they are worshipping. And these Christians have come out of that practice, and Paul is saying, don't participate in the idol worship. Come out from it, be separate from it, don't go back into it. And when you have people coming out of those practices, don't try to lead them back into it in, in other ways as well, which is where this food comes up, the meat offered to idols, which is discussed at length. So the Lord is very clear. He does not want us to participate in idol worship. The second thing Address. Well, the idol worship that uh, from our text is this golden calf incident from the Old Testament where Aaron is feeling some pressure by the Israelites to create a, a visible God for the Israelites. They said, make us a God. We want a God like the Egyptians. And so he's like, okay, well, give me all your gold. So they give him their gold and they th- throw the gold into. He, he alleges that he threw the gold into the fire and just out popped this statue. That's not what happened. He actually carved and, and crafted this golden calf, which at uh, the museum in Jerusalem, they, they're showing us these ancient um, idols that they've uncovered And they're surprisingly small. And they said to us that actually the golden calf was probably like this big. Probably about the size of your average American house cat. And so you have a million people bowing down and worshiping this this statue. It's not this huge thing the size of this entire stage, but actually it could fit right here on the podium. And the Lord is very angry (laughs) with that. Speaking in simplified terms. That was not okay. Um, so, idol worship is off limits. Number two, sexual immorality. As part of that situation, part of that, uh, that event, which I believe is described in Numbers 23, I don't have it in my notes, and I didn't look it up or write it down. But that incident, Moses is coming down from the mountain, and it says... Um, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. What happens as Moses is coming down the mountain is he hears the noise. He hears the music. He hears the partying. And he sees this drunken orgy going on. Over 23,000 Israelites participating in this. And if you think Moses is mad, he is not nearly as holy as our Lord is. Even though his face shone with the brightness of the glory of God that he saw on the top of the mountain. The Lord call, calls us to take sexual immorality seriously, sexual purity seriously, to take this topic seriously, to not be like the pagans. Now we have, praise the Lord, just made it through June. And I'm thankful that I didn't see any PBC people celebrating pride or posting rainbow flags or anything of that nature. But every year, I see more people that I used to be friends with, that I went to Bible college with, or that were uh, Christian ministry nonprofit leaders going that direction. A former church intern that I worked with at the food pantry, marching in the pride parade, posting it on Instagram. Instagram. And if he sends me an email tomorrow, I'm not apologizing. (laughs) Even if you're holding a sign that says Jesus loves the gays. There's a right way and a wrong way to preach the gospel and marching in a pride parade is not the way. The Lord tells us to take sexual immorality seriously, that this is a, a grievous sin in the sight of God. Number three, the third point, and I promised several of you in the Poconos that I was going to talk about complaining in my sermon today, and so here we are. It's in the text. The third thing that is addressed, you have number one, idol worship, number two, sexual immorality, and number three, you would think, okay, well, that's going to be something serious, right? Like murder, don't kill people. Well, actually, it's grumbling, so you might be feeling pretty good about yourself in points one and point two. You're like, hey, I haven't been in any uh, like Buddhist temples lately. I'm not practicing Hinduism. I'm not doing any of those things. And I'm keeping my pants on. And we're, we're doing pretty well here. But, oh, let me tell you about how those other people ate all the food on the retreat. And I didn't get any because I was at the end of the line letting people go first. That's grumbling. And let's get back to our text. It says, um, verse 9, let us not tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents, nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. I am thankful that God does not deal with us today, typically, the way he dealt with his people in the Old Testament, because God did kill people for complaining in the Old Testament. What's happening when you complain? You're actually challenging God and saying that God was wrong. God's sovereignty, His wisdom, His goodness, that was wrong. Now, that is not the same thing as saying don't pray for your bad circumstances to change. That's different. When you have a complaint, when you have an issue, take it to the Lord. Plead with Him, beg Him, ask Him to, to bring you relief, bring you deliverance, to change your situation. But this grumbling spirit is, this is the most contagious of any of these sins described here. Because it is as, I, I, I don't know if it's in Jerry Bridges' book or not, but Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Acceptable Sins, and complaining would be one of those acceptable sins, where it's just like, we don't really take it very seriously. It's hot in here. Oh, the train is ten minutes late. Getting really agitated and angry within yourself because things aren't going the way they ought to be going. Making sure everybody else is unhappy too because you you didn't get the kind of cheese you wanted on your burger. Oh, I'm just standing up for myself. No, you're complaining. You're grumbling. So these are ancient warnings applied today. It tells us twice in this section, verses six through 11, that these things are examples Written for us, for our admonition, for our instruction. So I would encourage you to take personal inventory. How are you doing in these areas? And when you find yourself coming up short, turn to Christ. And tell him, Jesus, I have been very complainy, very grumbly recently, and I'm sorry. Help me to be content. Help me to trust you. Help me to turn to you with my concerns and you with my problems instead of grumbling to try to, to spread this discontentment to others. Did you know that when you hear about a problem, you don't actually have to tell everybody else about it? That you can be the end of that story? I do not say this as a person has perfected this. I have not. An ancient warning applied today. Moving forward, uh, verse 12 and 13, application. Truths to consider when facing temptation. Truths to consider when facing temptation. Chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The, the core of the, these two verses is that God will provide a way of escape from temptation. In our application, in our truths to consider, the first thing I want you to, to if you're taking notes, to write down this. Have some humility. Number one, have some humility. Don't say, oh, I would never do that. I would never fall like that. I would never give in to the type of thing that someone else is doing. When you see someone sin in a horrible way, don't become inflated at their downfall. I remember my own childhood when seeing my little brothers. You're like I got in trouble a fair bit, but my brothers got in trouble much more than me. And I would see them being in trouble, and I would be off in the side, kind of snickering, like. <laughs> that's not me, didn't happen to me, or I didn't get caught. Any of those things, like having that sort of prideful disposition towards someone else, or even taking delight in seeing someone else get caught or get in trouble, that's not good. You are not righteous enough to have that type of attitude about someone else that you see stumbling and falling. So have humility. Remember where you would be, or where you used to be, Apart from Christ, have some humility. Self-righteousness is the shortcut to your own colossal collapse. Self-righteousness is the shortcut to your own mighty fall. When you think, oh, I am so good, I am so holy, I am so much better than those other people. Also keep this in mind, not just for yourself as an individual, but also as a church. Don't become inflated or puffed up thinking, oh, we are the best church ever. We wouldn't ever have any problems. Self-righteousness is the shortcut to your own collapse. Our text says, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest you fall. Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So have humility. Number two. So point one in these application points to consider regarding tempt, uh, temptation. First is humility. Secondly, remember that you are not alone. You are not alone. No matter how isolated you may feel, others have gone through this before. You are not the first person on earth. Period. There are other people that have lived a human life before you have. Secondly, you are not the first person to go through this thing that you're going through before. You're not as unique. You're not as special as you think you are. And this temptation that you struggle with is not unique. You're not the only person who is ever dealt with this particular type of temptation. Others have faced this before. When you feel like you're alone, when you feel isolated, or when you in fact are isolated, when you isolate yourself, or when you allow others to isolate you, that is another shortcut to disaster. The first is this pride. The second is isolation, cutting others off and saying, you know what? I'm just going to skip the church. I will be alone. I don't need Christians. They're all hypocrites anyway. I'm going to do my own thing. The fact of the matter is that others have gone through these things before and they have valuable Resources and wisdom, encouragement to help you. But beyond these other human sources of encouragement, which are very real and very important, remember our Lord Jesus, who is our high priest. And he is the type of high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in all points, like we are, yet without sin. So remember, when you are feeling alone, when you're feeling abandoned by God, when you are frustrated with your circumstances, when these things before you seem to be severe mercies, as the old expression goes, this is a bad situation and you want out of it. Remember that Jesus has experienced some bad situations and he wanted out of it. He understands that feeling And he tells you, come to me. Come to me and find rest for your soul. You find in Jesus a sympathetic high priest, a merciful high priest who understands. And he has promised not to be, not to abandon you, not to leave you, but to be with you. And then thirdly, so number one, humility. Number two, you're not alone. Number three, Remember the faithfulness of God. These are truths to to consider when facing temptation. Truths to consider when facing temptation. Number three, remember the faithfulness of God. Our text says God is faithful. This is God's solution, which he offers to those who are overwhelmed by temptation himself. He says, I'm faithful. You're not faithful. Those other people you're dealing with that are not faithful. Your circumstances are not faithful. Everything around you, though, the, what does it say, though, all around my soul gives way? He then is all my hope and stay. When everything around you is falling to pieces, God is faithful. And it doesn't just say that God is faithful. It says more than that. In our text, we're in what, verse 12, 13? Um, verse 13. God is faithful and there's a particular shape to that faithfulness which says who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God makes a way of escape when we are utterly at the end of our rope. When we are completely beyond our limits and our abilities to bear this temptation, God gives us a way out. He gives a release valve. And it comes in unexpected ways at unexpected times. But it comes just like that. Water that you so desperately needed when you were at the ball field and you, are, you feel like you're going to drop because you're so thirsty and you either are searching through your backpack or a friend walks up and says, hey, here's some water. And you're like, thank you. I needed that. God makes a way of escape when we are utterly at the end of our rope. This, we talked about prayer recently on the Wednesday worship. The Puritan said that praying was pleading the promises of God. This is one of the promises of God that we should plead before him. We come before him and say, you promised, you told me you were faithful and you would make a way of escape. A way out from this temptation. So God, I cry out to you, deliver me from evil. That's actually part of the Lord's prayer. Deliver us from evil. Rescue me. God either takes you out of the situation or he provides the presence of help in the time of temptation. But either way, he is telling us, he's told us because he is faithful, he's there to help us. And that help may be supernatural, it may be something invisible, or it might be very visible and very human. In practical human terms, you're moving into a new apartment and you're on a fifth floor walk up and you've been moving for six hours, and you're carrying boxes and boxes and boxes of books or very heavy things, and for whatever strange reason, you forgot to bring your sofa to last, and you're there on the bottom end pushing it up, and your arms are weak, and you're about to drop, and the sweat is dripping down your face, and your hands are slippery, and you feel like you just can't make it, and then uh, Howard comes up behind you, and he says, I got this. Is that helpful? Is that vivid enough for you? That is human help. But in that moment, is, it is human help supplied by God through one of his choice servants. I can personally attest to numerous times when I felt completely overwhelmed by trials and temptations of life and experienced the refreshing encouragement of a friend brought, which brought hope or healing or relief in that moment. And I can also attest to times of great trials, when I felt the presence of God, which brought such comfort, when all around my soul gave way. And it is sort of like that future grace analogy that John Piper writes about in his book with that title, where you say, well, I don't feel ready to die. I don't feel ready to stand in front of someone who's saying, deny Christ or else I'll kill you. And you're like, oh, I'm not ready for that. Yeah, you're not ready for that. But in the hour where you need it, there will be grace to help you in that way you most need it. And the image or the illustration that he uses is that of a ticket, an airplane ticket. You're traveling with a small child. You've got the tickets in your pocket. You hand it to your kid right before you get on the plane. You don't give it to him the day you bought it because he's going to lose it. But right before, right when he needs it, you're like, hey, here's the ticket. He scans it, and he makes it through. What happens if he doesn't have the ticket? Well, he doesn't get on the airplane. The Lord knows what we need when we need it, and he will provide it. And that can be very frustrating when you want to know everything in advance, and you want to have it all figured out. You want to know what things are going to look like in six months, and you don't know. When you want to know if your school is going to still be in existence or not. When you want to know what you're going to be doing for work. When you want to know a a, a medical outcome, a diagnosis. When there are these things that you're waiting on. You can be confident that the grace of God that you will need in that moment, that will be supplied for you when you need it. So, remember the faithfulness of God in times of temptation, even when that temptation is something as seemingly innocent as grumbling and complaining. This is an antidote to grumbling and complaining, remembering the faithfulness of God, crying out to God with our burdens. Point two in our remaining 15 minutes the Lord's table versus the devil's table. I think we have a slide for this. Here we go. The Lord's table versus the devil's table. Um, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one body, one bread. We all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. See, he is pointing back to some more Israel and more Christ. And, Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partaking of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So let's go quickly because we still have another like three, four two pages of notes. Verses 14 to 17, the Lord's table is communion with Christ. We don't just call it communion because we ran out of names for things. We call it communion because we're communing. We have union with Christ and his people in communion. Because of that, we are exhorted, we are instructed to flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to wise men, uh, judge for yourselves what I say. Flee from idolatry. Verse 15, judge what I'm saying. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. Verse 16, the cup is communion in the blood of Christ and the bread is communion in the body of Christ. These are the two symbols. These are the two things which we're using to remember Christ, but there's more than just remembrance going on. There's actual communion going on. Because of that, there are certain implications which are described in the second point, verses 18-22. through That participation in idolatry is demon worship. And on the basis of this distinction between idol worship being demon worship, or idolatry being demon worship, and the Lord's table being communion with Christ, because of that we must keep these things separate. And you cannot be an idol worshiper and partaking of the Lord's table. Verse 18, observe Israel after the flesh. Are those, are not those who eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. When we take the Lord's table, also a lot of churches, they'll have like a bigger table right here and they call it the communion table. Sometimes they call it the altar. Um, It's it's a table, not really an altar, but it's kind of like an altar because an altar is like a table. What's going on there? Well, it's symbolizing this temple furniture. Both Jewish temples and pagan temples have a table there. And on that table, they put stuff. And that stuff is tied to their religious practice, their worship. And so if you are in a a pagan temple and they are offering their sacrifices to these pagan gods and there's meat up there and you're walking down to the front to get your piece to participate, you throw your money in the offering basket and you grab your, your piece of pork that's been burned to the god Zeus, you're participating in demon worship in that moment. now he says in verse 19 what am i saying then that an idol is anything or that what is offered to idols is anything rather the things which the gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to demons and not to god so there's a real spiritual reality taking place that's typically invisible and it's going on behind the scenes and that that, that idol or that statue like that's that's not actually anything like you could melt that down melt down that gold statue and turn it into like doorknobs or something and it would all be like, you just, you got fancy doorknobs now. There's nothing intrinsic in that gold. But there is a very real spiritual reality taking place behind this. Uh, Verse 21, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So what he's saying is pick a side. You can't have both. When you try to straddle the fence and say, I'm going to be on both sides, that provokes the jealousy of the Lord. And he gives a rhetorical question. Are you stronger than him? The answer is no, you're not. So the Lord's table is one thing and the devil's table is another thing. And when people want to know why we don't do open communion here, this is a great text to go to because we don't have time to do a 30-minute long interview with every random person that walks in. But the Bible's made it clear we should not be doing both or participating in both, and I have some responsibility as the one leading in this that I don't want to be heaping up judgment on you. So there are simple ways to, to guard that, and we've chosen that particular way. Moving forward, point three. Ultimate priorities, all glory to God. Ultimate priorities, all glory to God. Verse 23. Again, this meat offered to idols thing is complicated because on the one hand, like it's just meat and you you could eat it. But if you recognize, you understand that it's tied to demon worship, you shouldn't eat it. If it's going to impact your conscience or the conscience of others, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no question for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for the conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, don't eat it. For the sake of the conscience of the one who told you, and for, the conscience, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. Conscience, I say, not yours, but that of the others. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of? For the food over which I gave thanks." Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jew or to the Greek or the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So the ultimate question for the Christian is not, can I do this? Sure, that's one of the things to ask, but it's not most important. The question is, will doing this thing edify or build up other people? particularly the ones you're, that are around you. You're supposed to seek the good of others. That's the priority for the Christian. There, uh, in a lot of studies on the book of Philippians, they'll say, well, Philippians is about joy. And the way you spell joy is Jesus, others, and you. Jesus first, God comes first, and then others come second, and then you come last. And when you do that and you frame your life around that reality, you will have joy. Now, there is truth to that. When you are others-focused, when you are God-focused first, and you're, not, you're not obsessed with whether you are getting what you want. Yes, you will have joy. Seeking the good of others is something that God calls us to do. Now, if you're listening or you're paying any attention, you probably noticed there's some, something in my tone where I've got more to say. Yes, I do have more to say. I've learned that in many places, people only think of themselves. And if you enter that room or relationship and you're the one giving and giving and giving and giving, and the other is taking and taking and taking, you will be destroyed eventually. So we must acknowledge this as a potential reality. hopefully, the infrastructure of the church provides these barriers and these boundaries that don't allow that, what that is, that's abuse. We don't allow that to just go on indefinitely. So be warned about that. I don't have a whole three-page expose on how to seek the good of others without being abused. I'm not prepared to talk about that right now. But just be alert to that. Acknowledge that while we still advocate for others' focus. Having an others-focused spirit of generosity while being aware that, yes, this can be abused and we want to avoid that. Nevertheless, we give. And we bless and we serve and we help other people. Verse 27 through 30. Verse 27 um, if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go eat whatever is set before you ask you no question for conscience sake what i think this text is teaching very plainly is not to be overly scrupulous do not be overly nitpicky don't pursue weakening your conscience remember the ones with the weak conscience are not the strong christians So having a laundry list of things that you're offended by is not the mark of spirituality. So don't pursue weakening your conscience by seeking the kind of information which you would find upsetting and then would in fact turn your life upside down because well now I know and now because I know I can't do it because whatever is not the faith is sin therefore my whole existence just got turned upside down because I went on this deep dive trying to find out every little thing I could about every... Thing in this situation. Don't do that. God doesn't want us being paralyzed with fear and crippled by anxiety and dominated by uh, this type of fear of the opinions of others or someone's hidden motives or their secret offense. So just have a nice dinner. You're invited for dinner. Eat whatever's set before you without asking questions. Just say thank you for providing this. Someone gives you an article of clothing, don't go into detail saying, oh, well, was it made in a Nike sweatshop with slave labor? Just say thank you. Applications for this are, like, limitless. You could come up with all sorts of Things, But the point, God does not want us to be the most difficult, impossible people on the earth. Um, If you are told important information which would make this practice disqualifying, then of course don't participate in this practice, not for your sake, but for the opinions of, of others. Because hopefully you are growing in your faith and you are being strengthened in your faith and you as a mature Christian are not easily offended. In fact, you are nearly impossible to offend because you've been built up in Christ so when you say, I'm not going to do that thing, it's not about you, it's about someone else. You, you know other people that would be negatively impacted by that information, and so because of that, you don't participate in the particular thing because you know that it's going to have a huge negative impact on someone who's present. Now this whole thing about liberty and conscience, we did an entire message on that a couple weeks ago. Verse 30, if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? Christian liberty is real. And you really are allowed to eat the pork chop or have the cheeseburger or eat the bacon or do these things. Like you're allowed to do, if the Bible doesn't say it's sin, you could do it. But there is an ultimate priority. And that controlling priority is described in verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And these types of things, what is most important is the motive. And that's your controlling priority. That's what determines whether you do the thing or don't do the thing in, in, in a particular situation or maybe a different situation that might be similar but a little different. Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. That's the goal. And he wants to impress this on others. This Perpetual question that comes up. Oh, well, that was for the apostle Paul, and I'm not an apostle, and I'm not a missionary, and I, like, that doesn't apply. No, he says, imitate me. Just as I also imitate Christ. So your ultimate priority is that all things, all lawful things, all things that you could do that are not sinful, you're controlling Control is the glory of God. May the Lord help us as we seek to rightly apply this in our own lives. Let's close with prayer. Father, I pray that you would teach us by your spirit through your word. That you would help us to see Christ in the Old Testament. That we would see him on every page of our Bibles. That we would recognize the ways that, he, that you have given to us to fight against temptation. That we would have humility. That we would remember that we are not alone. That we would remember the faithfulness of God. Help us to avoid idolatry, to avoid participating in communion with demons. But that our union with Christ would compel our communion with Christ and his people. That we would be people who are holy and sanctified. That we would be people who do all that we do for the glory of God. And on matters of conscience, that that would be the thing that answers questions for us, that that would be the thing that motivates us and compels us. Not our own preferences, not our own pleasure, not our own um, agendas, but the glory of God. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.